Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the, uh, I think the fourth or the fifth class, fifth class, um, of our Truth of Happiness Dhamma study. Uh, the first class we looked at and established jhana as our method of meditation and why we why we practice jhana meditation within the Buddha's Dhamma. Um, could everybody silence their mics? I can't tell one is on. It's kind of making a little background noise. Um, and then we looked at the next class was on the four foundations of mindfulness where the Buddha teaches us, thank you for that, where the Buddha teaches us the four foundations of mindfulness as the establishment of jhana meditation and then how to apply that to various themes of the Dhamma uh, that, that uh, require a well-concentrated mind to develop. Uh, then we looked at the four noble truths. The whole point of the Dhamma is to develop an understanding of these four truths. Uh, and last week we began looking at the uh, the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path, the eightfold path leading to the cessation of ignorance of four noble truths. Uh, we started uh, last week's class, a brilliant class on uh, right view and right intention, and that leads to um, to this section on the uh, moral or ethical or virtual factors of the eightfold path of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Um, and I'm not going to read the, the whole chapter. I know you, you all have been doing your homework, um, but I'm going to read some of it. Uh, it is the preoccupation with stress that creates a distraction that continues wrong views. So the Buddha could almost have accurately, almost, have accurately declared the first noble truth as there is distraction, as there is stress, there is dukkha, because it is the preoccupation with dukkha with the things that we don't want to happen in our lives or the things that we want to have more of that creates the distraction that keeps us out of our bodies our entire life. We're always we're thrown to the past and the future, back and forth, based on that preoccupation with stress. It is ignorance of Four Noble Truths that gives rise to the belief that our personality is the sum of the self. So this, this personality, what the modern people we call the ego, uh, is really just a an aggregation, a conglomeration of our life experiences. And since that life experience is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, it's a fabrication in that context. It doesn't relate to the, to the actual reality of a human life. Having this limited and wrong view of self gives, gives, excuse me, gives rise to greed, aversion, and delusion, the, the, the three defilements. Out of this mental-physical aggregation, an individual personality arises. It is this personality that makes choices and takes actions based on attachment and perceived needs. And that attachment is ultimately attachment to wrong views or views ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And that also translates to views that are ignorant of what constitutes a human being, what actually constitutes this self. And again, remember the Buddha didn't teach no self or non-self. Or none of that, none of that notion that would lead to the belief in an annihilation of self. The base need of the ego personality is to continue to define and maintain the ego self and its beliefs. We spend our whole lives doing that, promoting our beliefs in order to maintain this ego personality. And many of us do this. Uh, most of us do this in the face of great resistance. In other words, it takes an awful lot of effort to keep this thing going. But that's what, you know, in the last 25 or 30 years, the medical profession, hello, Dr. Dr. Kevin is there with us and others, um, have found out how, uh, how just common everyday stress is so debilitating to our, just our well-being and our health. This is something the Buddha recognized 2,600 years ago. Um, and so if we can find a way to actually deal with that at this deep and profound level, we're not just affecting our mental well-being, we're actually affecting our physical well-being, but more importantly, we're affecting the well-being of our mind in the way it perceives this self in relation to the world around us. Nothing can be more health healthy than that. 
Mindfulness of right speech, action, and livelihood. The three virtuous factors of the Eightfold Path shows clearly where attachments to an ego personality have formed. So many people, when they first take up Dharma practice, right speech is the, is the um, most obvious uh, and apparent entry point. We all have to talk. Uh, and so when we start applying the framework of the Eightfold Path and these aspects of right speech, action, and livelihood that I'll touch on in, in just a moment, we start recognizing the quality of our mind. What we're holding in mind about ourselves and the world we live in will always come out in what we're saying to ourselves and others. So just as importantly as the, as the right speech that we're, that we're expressing out into the world is the speech, the internal speech, the internal dialogue, the internal storytelling that maintains this ego personality. So it, again, to make that point, we should be mindful of our external speech and what's coming out of our mouth as a clear barometer of the quality of our mindfulness, but also, and John in meditation facilitates this, what's the story we're telling to ourselves? Be mindful of it, recognize it, and recognize the fabrications in it. Excuse me. This ego self or ego personality is not just a conscious presence, but a consciousness influenced by physical senses. Remember how we talked about how we come in contact with the world through our sixth sense base, and each one of those, uh, the Buddha attributes a type of consciousness to each one of those uh, senses, the eye consciousness, ear consciousness, etc. So as we were coming in contact with the world through our sixth sense base, we start forming perceptions and fabrications, mental fabrications, based on that contact. But if that contact, the consciousness that's informing that contact, is rooted in ignorance, then it can only determine an ignorant outcome. This is why meditation alone cannot bring lasting peace and happiness. Because meditation alone, without the framework to look at what's occurring in our own minds, is only just rehashing that story. And I've, I've talked with many, many people over the years now that practiced a medita meditation practice or a mind-only uh, practice and got themselves in deep trouble. I could even use the word psychosis in many cases because all that they were doing was getting deeper and deeper to, into the things that they had most aversion to, that troubled them the most. And as I learned from a teacher many years ago, Arnold Patton, one of the things that he talked about is what you focus on expands. And if, in, if your meditation practice doesn't have the proper framework, meaning the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path, it can, it can often will, it can and often will um, promote a deeper level of, of, uh, of, of wrong views and a deeper level of, of the distraction that we're talking about and only promoting this, this fabricated self that is prone to stress and suffering. Without a framework grounded in right view, meditation can, can reinforce hurtful views arising from an ego self. Due to the nature of conditioned mind, the entire framework of the Eightfold Path is necessary to develop concentration, compassion, and wisdom. The Buddha taught, Buddha's words, a true and effective Dhamma practice must incorporate these three trainings. Which three? The training in heightened virtue, the, vir the virtuous factors, the training, the training in heightened concentration that we're going to get to on Tuesday that David will, will teach, and the training in heightened discernment that we learned in our previous class, the wisdom factors. Right speech is the third factor of the Eightfold Path. By mindfully integrating right speech, it becomes clear how words are used to continue establishing a self that is prone to stress. Again, look at, the, look at what's coming out, of our, uh, coming out of our mouth, both externally and the story we're telling to ourselves. Right speech is abstaining from lying and speaking truthfully. Now, as I'm reading this, recognize it that there, these, every human being is capable of, of this, these, of right speech, right action, right livelihood. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a saint. It doesn't take a, a, a person grounded in some type of extraordinary uh, behavior or even some type of extraordinary morality. This is just a peaceful way of living in the world that anybody can develop but notice that because of conditioned mind and fabricated views, we have aversions to doing this all the time and doing it with gentleness and grace. Right speech, abstaining from lying, speaking truthfully. Abstaining from divisive, abstaining 
from divisive speech. Boy, we've lost that one lately, haven't we? Including gossip. Speaking with compassion for all. You know, a good way to avoid gossip is just not to talk about other people when they're not in our presence. Speaking with compassion for all. Abstaining from abusive speech. Speaking with kindness and tolerance. Abstaining from idle chatter. If, boy, if, if the world would do that, there'd be no Facebook or Twitter or the other ones, would there? Speaking only what is necessary and helpful. Speaking only what is necessary and helpful. I just want to make a point about this because we have two retreats coming up. The main reason that we don't have silent retreats, four silent retreats, the, the reason why we practice noble silence is because our retreats are informed by right speech. And if we weren't, if we weren't focused on right speech in the entire Eightfold Path during a retreat, where else are we going to do it in that type of setting? And so it takes practice to develop this. And that is why we don't have four silent retreats. We have retreats that are informed by right speech that lead to noble silence when right speech is not practical. Abstaining from idle chatter, speaking only what is necessary and helpful. Wrong speech arises from clinging, craving, and aversion. It is often used to promote or defend the ego personality, even in very subtle ways. Wrong, wrong speech can be very subtle at times. Gossip in particular, in particular is always hurtful and always arises from the desire to promote an ego personality. It is best to only speak of others when they are present. Idle chatter is used as much for distraction as for social necessity. A great measure of true friendships are friendships that are maintained without idle chatter. We all know that. The people that we're closest with, we can often do that. But <coughs> we can't often do that with people that were, uh, are strangers that we're not very well acquainted. That type of silence seems, um, can very, be very off-putting unless we've developed a measure of uh, concentration. As wisdom develops, an understanding that spoken words will actually be helpful to someone or a situation will also show if they are necessary. Words that have no meaningful impact are part of idle chatter and can often prove divisive. Right speech also pertains to what we are saying to ourselves and should be considered within the same guidelines. Are the words we are saying to ourselves truthful, helpful, kind, and compassionate? Are our thoughts a type of unnecessary idle chatter? From the perspective of right view and the direction of right intention, right speech develops to very subtle levels. Once gross wrong speech is identified and mindfully abandoned, recognition of speech that may have seemed helpful and altruistic may now seem to be manipulative and, and designed to be, elicit a particular response. Look what's going on in the world today. It's all, it's, it's not all, much of the social conversation is rooted in ideology and intended to be manipulative. And it's often you fear and um, and exclusion is often the is often the stick used rather than the carrot in in, in, in this type of manipulation people are people are, are made to feel um, less than even from an out from altruistic people and this is why you hear me say often and it's also why the Buddha didn't see himself as a savior or teach a salvific uh, Dhamma. It's that at that need to save self and others that leads to this type of manipulative speech that often is characterized as as healthy and wholesome when it really is just manipulative and designed to elicit a particular response. A clear understanding of the state of one's well-being and understanding can be discerned by uh, by observing one's speech towards themselves and others. Again, let me just say it again because we're using we're using. We're using who and what we are in this present moment as our Dhamma practice. So unless we're willing to do this, what I'm about to read again, there is no Dhamma practice, but this is our basic practice. A clear understanding of the state of one's well-being and understanding can be discerned by observing one's speech towards themselves and others. And again, that's the, the jhana meditation gives us the concentration to be able to do that, to observe both our self-talk and that ongoing story we're telling ourselves and to, to be mindful of what's coming out of our mouth for most of us, for the first time in our lifetimes. Um, 
and I don't mean that we're not, we haven't been aware of what we're saying, but to be aware of what coming out of our mouth within the framework of the Eightfold Path is one of the most enlightening things we can ever do. Because, again, we're going to realize very subtle levels the, um, the self-referential views that we've incorporated as part of our ego personality and up until that recognition have been massaging them, making them feel uh, justified in the world for whatever reason, whether it's for protection or promotion, they're all rooted in a fabrication and they'll all come to mind when we're mindful of right speech and these other factors that we're talking about today. John, would you say that one more time? I can't. What did I say? <laughs> um, the, the line you read twice. Do you read it a third time for me? A clear, thank you. A clear understanding of the state of one's well-being and understanding can be discerned by observing one's speech towards themselves and others. Because who and what we are will always come out in our speech. And, but even more importantly than that, what we're telling ourselves, and that's where jhana meditation comes in. What we're, the story that we're telling ourselves is, is the distraction that comes up. As I, as I enter jhana meditation, I take a breath, I'm establishing seclusion, I'm leaving the world behind. And the next minute I'm distracted by a thought. That's that thought that is ongoing eye-making. That's the thought that is rooted in the story I keep telling myself. It's the, it's the thought that persists and distracts in jhana meditation in, in order to maintain ignorance. It's the direct experience of eye-making within, within this proper framework. And now, uh, we talk in many classes, we talk about the ever-deepening levels of jhana and now applying concentration to our own behavior, internal and external. Without the entire path, good speech, good action, a good likelihood versus right is equally in all of you. Right, say that again, please. You can you can have a moralistic and not participate in any of the gossip, idle chatter, but without the framework. Yes, because it could be, it could and often is rooted in a certain ideology that one thinks they must be, rather than just because of, as a consequence of having a calm and peaceful mind, a non-aggressive mind. And while you were saying that, I was thinking about my mother. My mother never said a bad, I never ever heard her say a bad word about anyone, ever. I never saw her lose her temper, I never heard her curse, none of that. Always pleasant. practice a little bit of wise restraint there for a moment. <laughs> but her, her pleasantness and her good behavior was rooted in, an, in her, the ideology rooted in her own, her own religious views of self. In other words, it, 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 she, as wonderful as she was, she really was, she was a, re, a remarkable woman. If I gave you, took a class and just told you her history, you'd, you'd be astonished at what this woman did. In a very ordinary, she never left her family or anything like that. But, um, but she was driven by this ideology that, that created a, um, a tension within her that she could never understand. And she couldn't understand it because she's, she knows that she's this good person, but where is this tension coming from? And we even talked about this, but we couldn't get at it in direct terms because she didn't really understand what was going on with her. But it is that that David was talking about. So unless, unless our compassion is married with wisdom, meaning understanding these four noble truths, that compassion will always have a tension about it. It will always have uh, an expe expectation about it, a salvific um, factor to it. Because it must, because it, it's driven by that mind that is rooted in a fabrication. A mind that is rooted in understanding feels no such compulsion, no such need to continue to establish itself even in that now salvific way, because it's at peace with itself. A mind that's at peace with itself will express that through its speech towards others. Thank you, David. Right action and right livelihood follow the same moral and ethical guidelines as right speech. I'm just going to touch on these. Right action is abstaining from taking life, remaining harmless to all beings. And I've got to qualify that. Because this, is, this line has been grossly misunderstood to mean that the Buddha promoted uh, vegetarianism. 
and he never did. In fact, there's many um, uh, suttas where uh, monks and nuns, nuns would come back uh, from their alms round and they would brag to the Buddha that so-and-so wanted to give them a, a bit of fish and they wouldn't take it because it's an animal. And the, and the Buddha would always admonish them, saying these people, when the, 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 the meager means that they have, they're willing to share with you and you throw it back in their face. And he was making a point. And even today, the, the, the extreme views, hopefully none of, none of our views, are that everybody in the whole world should never ever kill an animal for food. Well, there's entire populations, mostly in the northern climates, but some in just very isolated areas, that if they didn't kill animals for food, they would die themselves. So we have to understand what we're saying here. These are not blanket statements that, that I am now taking from my exalted view and applying them to everything out in the world. This is for me personally, to abstain from taking life. So if I notice it outside of me, it's, got, it's none of my business. These are for me to develop. Abstain from taking life. There's also an aspect of abstaining from taking life that relates to right speech. Character assassination is also meant part of this abstaining from taking life. It's all part of this, this package that we're talking about. Remaining harmless to all beings. And notice how this follows. Right action follows right speech. Because we can't, help, we can't hope to engage. Our actions cannot follow wrong speech or harboring wrong speech rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Right action is abstaining from what is not freely given, taking only what is offered. Abstaining from sexual misconduct, acting with generosity and kindness. Again, the Buddha never taught celibacy or chastity. I have a hard time remembering that word on Thursday's class. He taught that we, we, that we bring these same virtuous factors into all aspects of our relationships, including our sexual relationships. It's, it should be characterized by, by wisdom, compassion, and great generosity. Abstain from selfish acts. Act for the good of all. And right livelihood is abstaining from dishonesty, profiting from virtuous acts, abstaining from hurtful endeavors, contributing to the common good, abstaining from the sale of intoxicants, abstaining from the sale of weapons or harmful items. That last, again, needs to be qualified. All arms sales aren't, arms salespeople aren't breaking this covenant because there's people that need guns to kill animals so that they can, they can live. And that's just the, that's the truth of living on this planet. Now, I don't need to, and so I don't. I'm fortunate that I don't have to do that. But I would not take that away from someone else if they felt that was what they needed to do. Right livelihood is remaining harmless when earning a living while contributing to the common good. It requires great wisdom coupled with compassion to know when to speak and to take action, when to practice restraint. And so we talk about that all the time, um, that this is the essence of Dhamma practice, is being well concentrated enough so that in this moment, as my life is unfolding, my life as life occurs, I can practice wise restraint. The only way to do that is with a level of jhana meditation, a level of concentration. And the framework of this Eightfold Path, now seen in its simplicity and rooted in these moral and ethical factors. So my behavior, my thoughts, my words, and my deeds, I now have a barometer in which to weigh them against. And again, this, this doesn't take a, 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 a saintly person, a person who is uh, completely isolated from the world, so there's no so-called temptations or no reason uh, to lose your mind. No, we don't lose our minds because we now have a framework rooted in jhana meditation so that we don't. And when we do, we will recognize it and not try to justify it or excuse it away. In other words, we won't blame worldly conditions or the people in the world for the way I'm feeling and the way I'm acting. I will, for the first time in my life, begin to own the way I feel and the way I act. Going back to the second class that we had here in the Truth of Happiness Dhamma study, the four foundations of mindfulness. Being mindful of feelings arising and passing away, being mindful of thoughts arising and passing away, and thoughts attached to feelings, meaning emotions. As I establish that in jhana meditation, I can now, now bring that to life as life occurs. And because of that concentration, rooted in not being distracted by feelings or thoughts, when I'm engaged in my life, when I'm off my cushion, 
I recognize this is just a feeling arising and passing away. This, even if I'm blaming it on a person in that moment, I'll have the presence of mind to recognize, wait a minute, that's just a feeling. It doesn't define me, and I don't need to allow that feeling to define this moment, and so define my entire life by giving in to the sensuality of the sixth sense base. So that's as far as we need to go, because again, I know you all read this chapter, uh, and I want to hear what you have to say. So, um, I'm just going to start at the top of my screen, and I think that's Brian up there. Hello, Brian. Morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, as, I, as I've started to apply the the concentration to my speech, both internal and external, I've realized how much I talk to myself, both internal and external, and I talk to my cat, and and there's really no need for that. And so I'm I'm then now I'm into the mind, right? And it's, I could just watch this absurdly neurotic behavior of my ego just going back and forth with itself. And I, I had thought it was you know, all these different voices and it's not different, but it's one voice in a house of mirrors and all these different aspects that are just competing and vying for attention. Yep. And the absurdity of all of that just helps to diminish the hold that it has. And it's just easier than to abandon. And again, it gets just quieter and quieter and quieter. So, um, just going back to the path, right? Just starting with that jhana and being able to develop that concentration. You know, a year ago, I couldn't, I couldn't hold any of that in mind, mm. and it, it's just, you know, it's like again, see the progression. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Seeing the absurdity of of these things is an aspect of jhana or dharma practice too. It, it it's it's seeing how ridiculous it is to try to maintain these fabrications. And thank you, Brian. Laura, good morning. Hi, John. How are you? Good. Thank you for asking. How are you? Pretty good. Um, thank you for the teaching. And I'm just um, kind of thinking about, I think you said it last class as well, um, but how all of the factors of the Eightfold Path, you know, today we went over kind of heightened virtue, but um, I've just been thinking about the limiting factor, the Eightfold path as a limiting factor and i didn't understand what you meant at first but i think now it makes more sense that really it limits that kind of uncontrolled unrestrained even if you have good and supposedly good intentions um it limits this like uncontrolled unrestrained growth mindset um that's just constantly seeking like reward achievement or um recognition or acquisition so um i'm glad that we're you know kind of learning how to apply the different factors of the eightfold path um you know in that way and like a restrained you know with wise restraint yeah yeah thank you laura that is that uh, that's the whole point is how do we practice this because this is all it is. It, you know, if we're not practicing the eightfold path, we're not practicing what a Buddha taught, and so this is it. And it is just that the the uh, the consequence of a mind rooted in ignorance of four noble truths is constant grasping after and clinging to. And so a dhamma that would counter that would be one that is limiting, and that's just what the eightfold path is. It limits our grasping after. It limits our constant eye making. It limits. The, the amount of, of distraction we constantly pile on ourselves. You know, we, everybody, almost everybody that's ever come to me um, as a student, and all of you have said this in one way or another, talk about how busy their lives are. Well, our, busy, our lives feel busy because it's our minds that are busy. It's because of how distracted we are to all the things in the world. But when we start developing the Dhamma, our minds quiet down. That's an aspect of restraint. And most people don't want to hear that. Most people have the idea, um, just as, as conditioning, that the whole purpose of life is to get as much as you can or have as many as experiences as you can. 
You know, everybody's got a bucket list. Well, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not so good. What, am I, what is it doing? Am I, am I losing sleep over my bucket list? Well, that's probably an aspect of I make. Or am I at peace with myself in this moment? Because if I'm at peace with myself in this moment, then I am practicing wise restraint. Because the, the, the implication of peace and calm is that in this moment, there's nothing needed. And because there's nothing needed in this moment, I now have the ability to be deeply engaged with, with life as life occurs. And so then each and every moment, each and every moment in life is meaningful because I don't need it to be any different. Thanks, Laura. Lauren, good morning. Good morning, John. Thank you for this teaching. And um, what Laura and Brian said really resonated with me. Um, what you had mentioned, um, the question to ask, what are you holding in mind? And kind of using that as a starting point to then realize the false reality that you may or may not be creating for yourself, right? And I find that I'm constantly drowning in these stories that I'm making up of like what someone might be thinking or what is happening that I need to respond to. And that's such a relief to then come back to your mind to realize the quality of mind that that you're creating and that really actually nothing might be needed in this moment. Um, and that's just like, like mind blowing <laughs> when you realize. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, this reality that you're creating. And, and through all these teachings, I, I'm, I'm noticing this kind of pattern that, that I keep thinking of this idea of that there's a self underneath a layer of like clouds that we've yeah. created, right? Yeah. And, um, and I'm just so curious to find that, you know, a lot of the teaching is abandon something or other or release this expectation. And I'm so curious and excited to learn like what the self underneath truly is. Ah. So I'm looking forward to this journey. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right now what that's up. You ready? Everybody ready? Ready. <laughs> The self is simply a reference point to what's occurring. But in that simplicity lies everything. Because now it's, it's, it is, it, it's, a, it's a true observer, not affected by its own fabricated views. It's a true human being. It's an, it's a, the reason why I describe awakening in that way, as a, awakening is full human maturity. That's it. It's only someone who is immature in some way that would want what's occurring to be any different than it is anyway, right? I mean, that's, children do that. Children want more cookies in the cookie jar. They're not happy with, you know, I'm, I was never happy with a half full cookie jar. I wanted this more. The Dhamma teaches us not to be, not to be begrudgingly accepting of life, to be present with life as life occurs. And that's enough because that's everything. And, and we're getting there and you're getting that understanding to, of it, Lauren, because you can describe it. That's remarkable. So thank you. Sangha Mom, how are you? Becky. You're Good muted. Morning. There you are. I'm, I'm, I'm unmuted now. I, it takes me a minute. That's all right. Good morning, everyone. Um, I really enjoyed listening to what everyone had to say. I focused on wise restraint because that's the thing that I feel has had a big impact on my daily life. Um, Not just recently, but as I've learned the Dhamma, it's one thing that I've, I've learned to go back to the question of what is my intention? And when I, when I'm doing one of those kinds of, in my mind, in the in the rabbit hole thing, worrying about what somebody else is thinking or what should I do about, you know, should I do this, should I do that? What what Laura was just Lauren was just talking about. I just can now I can stop and I can say, what is my intention? And that is so freeing. And it's also so enlightening because you take a minute to think about what it is 
that you are ignorantly going after. And then you realize it's just, and you can then react from a point of, of, of not non non ignorance. <laughs> so that that's my contribution. That Thank a, you, John. A great contribution, and, and Becky, I really like the the, the sound effect um, <laughs> as it uh, describing ignorance in that way. <laughs> Could you do it again, please? <laughs> that's good. That that's ignorance. That that is the best description of ignorance I've ever heard. That's it. Thank you, know, you, Becky. You know, I do I do have a background as an actress, so I tend to uh, perfect. Add those sound effects yeah. as I go along. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Kevin, Dr. Kevin. we got two Kevins up here this morning. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Good morning. How's your retirement um, going? It's going well. Good for you. Um, you know, removing and the distraction is just incredible. Yeah. We're just getting everything set up. It was so nice to be settled for, you know, nearly 30 years and think, oh, everything's just fine. And then you move and it stirs up so much distraction and so much stuff. Lesson so much terms. worry and so much like, oh, am I doing this right and all this crap. <laughs> but it's so great to hear. I like that it's characterization so to too. Hear, great, great to hear um, people's comments and, and it just resonates with me. Um, I have been able to continue to meditate at least once a day while I'm here and keeping up with uh, the reading and with um, Dharma practice. So thank you very much. And uh, that's all I have. Thank you, Kevin. Good to see you this morning. Uh, Mary. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, It's great to be here um, and going through this again. Um, for me, it's a reminder to, um, interrupt my thinking. Um, that's pretty hardwired in, um, in my daily living. And, um, and so to interrupt it and to, um, release some of what I'm thinking and to, like, for me, it's almost like training myself to think, for what's needed, right, to, to, to do my job or to be uh, a good friend or whatever, and then trying to let the rest of it, you know, go. And um, so I'm, you know, I, I continue to work on that. Um, I think for so many years, maybe like others, I just, you know, I thought my thinking was something special. And yeah. to realize that my thinking is, you know, Causing the suffering is uh, fantastic to know, but a hard habit to break. So I continue to um, uh, come back to the breath, uh, maintain my practice, um, you know, do the readings, etc. So thank you for the teaching, John. Thank you for your comments, Mary. It really is a, a, a good example of an ego personality out of control that, that we become so enamored with our own thinking. Until we realize, just as you describe it, we realize that it's the root of all of our discontent. It's, it's my thinking. It's not anybody else's. It's not going on in the world. It's not who the president is. It's not because there's COVID. It's because of the way I'm thinking about myself. Yep. And it always is. Thank you, Mary. Good morning, Matteo. Hi, everybody. Um, so this is something related to what Brian and also Becky say. So like a couple of days ago, I was doing my, my morning meditation. And usually I do a, a bit longer than 20 minutes because it's not enough for me to come down. And I realized that I start to have a, like, I realized afterwards, I start to have a, like idle chat in my mind. So to, I don't know how it happens. I end up, I create like a, an imaginary chat with a friend and we start to go on and on and on and on. And then we argue. We also argue with this friend. And then it's yeah. like, I just open my eyes and I say, okay must be like three minutes and doing that. I start again my meditation. Then I I, look, I check my clock. It was like 20 minutes. So I did like 20 minutes in imaginary arguing with a friend. It, it, it is a good friend of mine also. They never argued with my life. I said, why are we arguing now in this meditation? So I realized this idle chat in this mental fabrication yeah. uh, is very rare happen. So, and I say, wow, I just laugh a lot when I find out that like 20 minutes arguing with myself, basically. 
And uh, that's so the right response. Our team, but it was like very, you know, it was the first time something very simple as example. First time that really analyze what's happened. I say, okay, that is idle chatting in my mind. That is a mental fabrication. Stop it. Be silly. Start to get your meditation yeah, and yeah. shut up. <laughs> and shut, yep, that's Dharma practice, my friend. Just, just that way. So, thank you, Matteo. Good morning, Dhamma teacher Jen. Good morning. Sorry I was late. Um, I really enjoyed listening to what everybody has to say. Me too. Um, I have this week been uh, noticing uh, the, I guess, really taking a look at the idle chatter and the, and the, wrong speech, I guess, that's going on internally. And I, I had an kind of an interesting insight that, um, uh, as I was, it was almost like, and this, 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 you know, obviously is a personal, but it's almost like there's thoughts almost coming up, but I, I wasn't, fully allowing them to sort of completely arise I was kind of resisting them in in a in a thinking that I'm abandoning them not but actually just being averse to them Mm, and the difference between that and really like allowing like really of just observing just really observing required sort of a almost like an invitation to sit at the table uh, from Hmm. me to the the thoughts that almost like the ego thoughts and just to just to kind of reconcile with with myself and with my ego to enough to allow the, the feelings to fully arise and pass away. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I just wanted to share that with the Sangha. Well, That's pretty much it. I, 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 excuse me for shaking my head while you're speaking. I didn't mean to, to, to be any, in any way disrespectful. What, what we're all saying, but what you really spoke so clearly on, Jen, is coming in contact with our own mind and doing it in a, in a, in a gentle, dispassionate, well-framed way. You know, the, the Tibetan word for meditation is gom, which really, literally means to become familiar with. And that's yeah. what we're all describing. We're becoming familiar with our own, the way we think. And why shouldn't we and why wouldn't we? Well, you know, there's a lot of reasons why uh, we think we shouldn't, uh, but we know that this is, this is a much better way. Thank you, Jen. John? Yes, David. That could have only occurred because of Jen's development of refining mind. That's right. That's right. That, that would not have been observed. She would have maybe seen it as some knee jerk. I got control of this thought, where she just saw a rising and passing away. Yeah. Did everybody hear that? What David said? I didn't hear him quite. Something about say it again. Control say it louder. Thought. You said it. <laughs> well, wait, wait, I'll, I'll say it briefly. What what. Jen is describing what we're all describing is that level of refined mindfulness. It's able to see these things in, in this in the dispassionate way that we're supposed to. Or you know, my, my thoughts only have power over me if I give them power. They're just they're my thoughts. Why can't I control them? Well, I never had the I framework guess, or the practice to do so. I guess the irony to me was was really that I ha- it's almost like I had to like it, it, it felt it felt like the, the opposite of what I, I I was thinking abandonment is to me it was like I I was thinking that abandoning was sort of turning my back on my thoughts yeah yeah, yeah and like, in reality it was like I had to fully I have to like fully be present with this you know kind of struggling mind yeah yeah the, like fully be present for yourself kind of thing yeah it's not a, an aloof dismissal of fabrications because that mm-hmm. because that, that's just another way of, of subtly maintaining them it's a conscious recognition and uh, there's an article on the website called mindfulness is recognition and renunciation it's both of those things in this context recognizing where is this coming up 
and, and consciously abandoning it. Because aloof dismissal is what... Yeah. <laughs> let me put Aloof dismissal is what saviors do. You know, it's not important to, to my mission because I'm saving everything. I'm, meaning I'm saving myself. So these other transgressions don't really matter. Well, again, the Buddha recognized that in, in his own mind, in his own practice, and abandoned it. Just this okay. way, coming in contact with it. Thank you, Jen. Dhamma teacher Kevin. morning john how are you i'm good thank you for asking how you doing kevin nice to see everybody today uh i'm gonna take noble silence there's been so much right speech from the sangha today thank you i'm glad you joined us uh brett good morning good morning uh i'll thank you again sorry i lost you there for a minute i blew a breaker oh glad you're back on yeah so and uh thank you for your teachings i know this last week was my first time and your teaching last week was remarkably relevant to what i walked into uh for the following week for last huh. week it was one yeah very helpful right. and in with this week i was uh i really liked your line there is no dhamma practice without you know an ethical practice i guess i like that when when i was brand new to buddhism many okay. like 15 20 years ago um I had this misunderstanding that meditation was just kind of a palliative that, you know, you really didn't have any demands. All you had to do was meditate. Yeah. It was like a narcissist. And then you start over and then you do the exact same foolishness all over again. And yeah. I was lucky. I had a good friend who was willing to look me straight in the eye and tell me I needed to stop doing that. And i uh, very grateful for him. And I really liked the question that was thrown out. Um, what is my intention? Uh, that someone shared and uh, that's a wonderful little question that you could throw out uh, not only when you're on the pillow but you know in you know tuesday morning at 9 30 yep. uh, when when things start getting busy and maybe even tense you can say well what is my intention yeah. so i enjoyed that I, I'm, I'm probably going to be using it this week and uh, so uh, i also liked your emphasis on internal speech yeah. I've heard that before, but sometimes it falls out of my, it kind of fell out of my awareness. I hadn't really been emphasizing it as much. Uh, so that's another thing to re-emphasize, so to speak. Yeah. So I appreciated that. Yeah. And uh, that's really all I have, but I appreciate you. Thank you so much for uh, your teachings. Oh, thank you for joining us, Brett, and continue to enjoy your practice. And that, uh, that uh, right intention, you know, is an aspect of, of wise restraint in this moment. What is my, is my intention in this moment to continue ignorance or is it my intention in this moment to move or continue towards awakening? And that's, that's really the only choice we ever have in our lives, especially those that are Dharma practitioners because we can recognize it. And as Jen was saying, it's right here, right now at the, at the point of contact. So again, Brett, enjoy your Dharma practice. Uh, I think uh, Tom is the only one left online. Tom, how are you? Very good. Thank you, John. Um, I'm glad you're well as well. Hello to everyone. Um, so I'll just very quickly just ask a question. Um, I, I liked what you said, um, or at least it resonated with me. Um, compassion without wisdom will always have a slight tension about it. Um, and it, it, it relates. It relates to a conversation I had um, about a week ago with a friend, a good friend of mine, who's very much into kind of activism and social work and stuff like that. And he was sort of saying that the anger needs to be there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that, that it needs to be there. That. He enjoys the anger yeah. um, because it it creates that sort of fire in the belly, if you like, to change things. You know, and he was giving examples of I don't know a Martin Luther King. Uh, and, and, and countless others that, that have had that fire in their belly and as a result have been able to um, bring about change. Um, now, I think I get it on a personal level, um, but I'm just curious to know what, how would you, what would you say to someone who, who had that opinion? Um, how would you explain it to them and what, what, what response would you, would you give? Uh, I, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm going to be, probably rather vague but uh, the first thing that comes to mind is every situation to me would be different 
So I, I really can't give a pat answer to, to that question if the individual said, said to me, I need to be angry in order to be successful in what I'm doing. Um, it, 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 sometimes it could be a confusion, you could be confusing anger with determination, um, and that is two different things. Um, but, but being against anything, that's occurring in the world is aversion. And it's always going to lead to tension. It's always going to lead to stress. And I'll use extreme examples of that just to make the point. But it happens also in the, in the microcosm of our lives too. But a couple good examples would be the Christian Crusades, uh, the modern jihads. And I always go back to our, our good old friend Adolf Hitler. This is a man that sincerely believed in what he was doing. And he believed in that he was the savior for his particular race. He was, and that was his mind. And, and the Christian crusaders believed in the same thing. They believed it was okay to kill people so that they could be saved. I mean, and, and human beings do come to these types of conclusions. So, and, and a lot of them did it out of anger, didn't they? Feeling, feeling completely justified. So history shows, it's just a, just a, um, a dispassionate look at history, not a, not a deep dive shows us that, that anger and that type of uh, ideological compassion, if you will, is almost always hurtful. So it's not just, just the, um, a clear observation says it's not. But even more importantly is I would say, how does it make you feel? Does it feel good? Do you like living your life this way, angry, angry at everybody or angry at the right or angry at the left or angry at COVID or angry at... Who wants to live their life that way? You feel justified because now you have your position and you're out saving everyone. But again, you, you mentioned Martin Luther King. Um, I don't know. He gave pretty powerful speeches, but I don't know that he was angry because he came to some conclusions that tell me he wasn't angry. He was, he was thinking rather clearly, but he was very determined and forceful in what he said. But that's a different thing. I don't think Martin Luther King was, was motivated by anger. or he, I, don't, I don't think he could have said the things that he said. You know, we judge people by the by the 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 uh, by their character, not the color of their skin. That's not someone who's angry about racism. That's someone who's who's thinking thoughtfully about it. You know, and and and, and contrasting to what's occurring today, just to make the point. So, um, and then getting back a little bit more to a more subtle level of your question, Tom, because it's important is what is the quality of my mind. Because that's going to determine what I can actually bring in the world. If I really care about humanity, and all and every, nearly every human being does, it it, it takes a, a deep um, and rare psychosis to actually be antisocial, to be truly antisocial. Most human beings are deeply compassionate about other human beings, but they're lacking understanding of four noble truths, and so they act in unwise way. They act out of anger and, and misidentifying that anger as cause, as, as the, uh, the, the, the reason for their cause. There's a phrase for that, too. That they, it's, it's almost that the anger justifies what they're doing because they're angry about it. You know, it, it, it just it has led us nowhere as a human species at, at all, ever. So I hope that helps, Tom. And excuse, yeah, yeah, excuse the long that's, answer. That's, but, you know, I got to say, right. that, and I, I, I know that uh, Tom and, and a lot of us are involved in, um, uh, in, in social awareness and social programs. And so, not, so what I said just now doesn't, say, doesn't mean, make that meaningless. But as wise Dharma practitioners, I think it'll only make us better. And, and whatever we feel, we can contribute to, to the world in a, in a meaningful way, in a helpful way. But let's calm our minds down first. Let's understand ourselves first and the cause of our own discontent before we insist that the world stop being so discontented. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Kevin, you had your hand up? Thank you. Yeah, this, uh, this came up. This came up with uh, someone else in the Sangha that expressed this to me also, and it just sort of draws us back into, you know, change, you know, fighting for change that's external rather than gently, uh, you know, for lack of a better, changing the way we think through through yeah. this practice. And, and there's a big difference there, you know, if, if we're changing the way we see the world, then 
we're probably going to be more calm at that instead of, you know, this, this other view of, uh, of sort of the, the way the world sees us, I guess, you know, or, or yeah. it's, 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 they're coming from different places, you know, well, having to change the world and change other people's thinking is, is really, like we said, aversion and, it is. you know, instead of the way you're, you're, you're having the reaction, not, you know, not anybody else. Yep. But, just a, a careful, again, careful observation of history would show that suing for peace doesn't bring peace. It just brings more war, more war, more anger, more upset. And why? Because the underlying thinking hasn't changed at all. And that's not likely to change. It's not, it's not, it's not the purpose of our Dhamma practice to change the world. It's my, the purpose of my Dhamma practice to change my mind. And in right. that the way... The conflict I, is, resides in our minds. Yes, and in that way, I am no longer contributing to the stress and suffering in the world. That's why you hear me say often, the most loving thing I can do for myself and for all other human beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because at least now I know I'm not contributing to the ills of the world in any way. So, but great discussion. Adam, Can I say morning. something? Uh, yes, to, Jen. To off of what Kevin said that just kind of came to my brain when he said that was, and I think this is what you're you're coming, you're getting at, Kevin was like, it, it, sometimes when we're using the Dhamma to um, help another person, we can get confused in thinking that I need to make them think the way yep. that the Dhamma is telling us to think, but that's actually not what needs to happen. What needs to happen in that conversation is I need to come back to me and what's coming up for me in this moment. And that yeah. is going to be the most helpful thing in the conversation. Even if it's just, oh, wow, this is, uh, you're, oh, oh, wow, I, I so disagree with what you're saying that I just have to sit here and have these feelings about it. <laughs> so I don't know if that helps. Yeah, well, it it, it it certainly does, and again, we 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 pick and choose where we're we're going to be safe, where we're going to share the dhamma is really what I'm saying, and we're not we're not uh, we're not evangelists because we know we can't be. It doesn't you you can't promote the dhamma by standing on a street corner and screaming it out, or make. And this is I was speaking with someone this morning about this the modern. Uh, engaged Buddhism. Well, that's a that's a form of Buddhism that in, that begins with taking a stance against something rather than promoting your own understanding of, of four noble truths. It's a completely different thing. Uh, one brings peace and calm, and, and one can only lead to more tension and strife. I think so. Adam, good morning. Good morning, John. Thank you. <clears throat> Just real quick, this may be a little trivial, but I find that. Uh, composing email is a great way to practice right speech. Huh. You know? <laughs> it's something I can do all day long, every day during the week, generally. Yeah. Because you're evaluating it, it, your intention, like, uh, like Becky said. And it gets fetched in stone, practically. Why is yeah. that? Hmm? Why is that? Yes, exactly. Why is that? <laughs> right, right editing. <laughs> yeah, right editing, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Adam. Tom, my teacher, Ron. Oh, yes. Um, a lot of people come to, including myself, come to Buddhism in general uh, as looking for like a moral compass, mm -hmm. um, and uh, there is some of that in there. And, and when I first saw the uh, the virtuous factors, uh, it was it was a relief. Kind of because it, they are uh, they're clear, yeah, uh, and they alleviated a lot of the confusion that I had about about my my moral compass. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's not until you're you're further into it and, and you you start to understand the Dharma a little better is that um, it. It isn't quite that. You know, there's a um, the, the the importance of the virtuous factors is more in uh, 
bringing about your your own your understanding of your own of your own um, lack of restraint. Yeah. Because uh, if you really start to practice the virtuous factors, uh, you'll come up against the resistance against that. You know, you you come up against the situations where you really don't want to practice the virtuous factors. You don't want to practice right speech because you think you are completely justified to yeah. chew somebody out. Yeah. Um, yeah you so might be <clears throat> mindful of right speech all the time, except in this one instant. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And you're not practicing right speech at all. right to just yeah. lay into somebody. Yeah. Um, and, and this is where the virtuous factors really start to, to uh, impact your, your practice. Yeah. When you understand that, that this is a test your, uh, if if you can't practice this, um, look again. Yeah. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is really That's right. where your practice becomes uh, becomes deeper. This is dharma practice. Is is framed by the other five factors, but it's experienced through right speech, right action, and right livelihood. You know, this is where we t- this is where we take our practices. Thomas Merton would say, "You take your practice off the mountaintop." And you bring it to the marketplace. And his, his, his quote was that meditation is useless if you can't take it off the, mount, the mountaintop and bring it into the marketplace. This is, our Dhamma practice is useless unless we incorporate these virtuous factors as our Dhamma practice, using them and applying refined mindfulness to these factors. This is, this is the quality of my mind right here and right now. If I find myself screaming at someone and cursing at someone, well... That's what I'm holding in mind, is that level of, as Tom was saying, that anger. What am I going to do about it? Thank you, Ron. Dharma teacher, David. Channel, I'm good today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you, glad you came. Um, thank you for your contribution. David will be teaching uh, the uh, concentration factors on Tuesday. Um, what time that class is? Tuesday's class is 7.15. 7.15. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we the door is always open about a half hour before class, and I usually open the Zoom rooms, or we open them about fifteen minutes before class too. So. Is there a Zoom for Tuesday? Pardon me. Is there a Zoom for Tuesday? Yeah, we Zoom all our classes. Oh, I thought that was only in person. No, 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 no. We've been Zooming all our classes for uh, four or five years, probably. Right. right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and a quick announcement: I'm going to send out a separate email probably Monday about our upcoming retreats. Uh, the the Pasadi, Pasadi means calm, uh, uh, hybrid retreat. That'll be both here in Frenchtown and online. Uh, that starts February 4th. And our spring retreat is going to be at one Dharma Center. Uh, the theme is profound contentment. Uh, and that begins April 28th. And I'll, that'll be in uh, either Monday or Tuesday's email. And with the reservation, all everything is ready to go. Um, if you are joining us, um, just please set your reservation as soon as you can, just because it helps you with my uh, logistics. But you probably could uh, reserve your space right up to the end, too. But uh, So those that have been on our retreats know the value of them in uh, deepening their uh, dharma practices. You really can't substitute for them. But, so if you can join us, please do so. Um, and we'll finish today's class with Meta as we always do, as soon as I can find it. You think after saying this twelve hundred times or so, I'd have it memorized. But <laughs> at this state, I got nothing. Nothing is memorized anymore. <clears throat> These are the Buddha's words on metta. Uh, metta means loving kindness from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So, again, take a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath, and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. In the Buddha's words, This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, 
the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, everybody. See you all soon. Thanks, Bye, everybody. Thanks, John. Bye. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Thank you. Have a great weekend. John, you want? Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.